0: Great to be back with you again tonight. I thought I'd um, start you off by getting you to do some work together on a particular issue. So this week I caught, I caught up with a girl who had been going out with a bloke for some time and about um, six weeks she came to see me and to talk about whether I thought it was appropriate for her to continue in that relationship and I just talked her through with her. They're both Christians, it was all possible. So you know, there are a range of issues and she decided to break it off with this guy. Uh, She came to see me again this week because, or last week, uh, because in talking with this bloke uh, and in breaking it off, he'd said to her she was being unspiritual. And uh, the reason she was being unspiritual was because she had made a decision of her own volition to break off this relationship rather than seeking God and a sign from God as to whether or not they should get married or not, okay? And uh, she talked it through with me. And I said, look, they tell you anywhere in the Bible that he was basing this, you know, we have to seek a sign from God to work out if we should be getting married or not. And she said, yes. Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. If she prayed like he had, God would make it very clear to her that she was to marry him. Was the answer based on these verses from Matthew chapter 7 that we just heard read okay I want you to talk twos or threes tell me what you think about this bloke's exegesis of this passage like forget the fact that he was being manipulative for the moment all right (laughs) don't worry about that bit just for the second tell me what you think about his his reading of this part of the scripture and uh, whether you agree with it whether you think there are faults with it and why you think that's the case okay just a couple of minutes to do it don't worry if you don't get too far that's okay give it a shot see how you go all right just a couple of minutes Yeah. (laughs) there's there's some silence that's happening here. (laughs) So I'm not urging you to keep talking. You may have expanded as much as you're going to at this point. I'll drag you back at this point. Okay, this this could be a discussion that you keep going with. Now you hear where the guy was coming from. He was the spiritual man. He was asking. He was seeking. He was knocking. And God was going to give him the answer. And if she did that, that would happen as well, you see. Okay. Now, Part of the problem, there are a number of problems attached to it that I won't bother going into, and I may come back and tell you what I said, I may not. We'll see how we go. Uh, but, but part of the problem was this guy was treating these couple of verses in isolation. Okay, he was plucking verses from the Bible and whacking them onto a problem that he had as the way of solving it. Now, can I say it's a really unhelpful way to actually approach the Bible, uh, but not unusual for Christians to do it, to rip things out, and attach them to things that they'd like to see happen. Uh, the issue here is if you were to read the, the Quran, for example that'd be the right way to read it, okay, because the, the Quran is just a series of spiritual ideas and statements and Um, nubs of, you know, advice and that sort of thing that are not meant to have any particular sequence attached to them. They don't have any historical context. They're just ideas that were given some bloke who wrote them down and they're not not coherent in that sort of sense. When you approach the Bible, it's, it's full of coherence. That is, you start from Uh, the garden you finish in the city you start with people in relationship with God who rebel most of the Bible is about God dealing with that rebellion sending the Lord Jesus to redeem them uh, and the consequences of that being united with God forever and eternity you know there's that plan of redemption Uh, when you tackle books of the Bible they're coherent books you take a biography of Jesus like we're looking at Matthew starts off with his birth finishes with his resurrection ascension, you know, and you get all the stuff in between times. And you expect there to be a flow in the development of ideas. And even when you deal with chapters of the Bible, uh, your expectation is that we're getting um, teaching and insight into the mind of God and the plans of God that hang together. That's why when we come to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, we're in chapter 7, uh, we come to what I reckon is a hard part of the Bible to get our heads around, and one of the reasons why it is hard is because you get these um, these bits in three major sections in twelve verses that you struggle to hang together. Let me show it on there. You start in in verse one. Okay, it says, "Don't judge, or you too will be judged." Okay, absolute statement. And let me say this is this is really twenty first century Australia, right? Every person in the street, you say, don't judge, us. you know, spot on, this is true. So you get the sort of the nodding happened there. But then you go to verse 6, and it says, don't give to dogs what's sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds a bit judgmental to me. Uh, you know, we just said, don't judge. Now we're identifying the dogs and the pigs that we're not going to treat very well. Then you come to verse 7, and we get this absolute, absolute ironclad guarantee about God answering every prayer you ever have. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, the door will be open. You know, want to be rich? Buy a cross ticket. You will win, okay? This is the promise here. Uh, want to be married? Sure. Pray, and pray specifically about a person, and God will answer your prayers. Want to be taller? No problems. Pray, you will grow by 10 centimetres. No problems at all. You know, like, it, it sounds like it. It's a, it's a name it and claim it, section. But I want to suggest to you that these, these disparate elements here in chapter 7 hang together in this section and they also fit within the argument particularly of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes his disciples up a mountain and instructs them about what it means to be his followers. Okay? And we're going to look and we should expect to see the connections and the flow and the message. That should always be our approach when it comes to the Bible, okay? So let's take a look at it and see what we can work at as we go along. Okay, starts off, um, don't judge, verses 1 to 5. Don't judge, or you too will be judged. From the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what, what sort of judgment are we talking about here? Uh, it could be the sort of judgment that's a, you know, a condemning judgment. You know, The judge in a court who passes a sentence on a criminal and then the sentence is carried out. And there are actually aspects of that that appear here in Matthew chapter 7. Let's uh, look at verse 13. Uh, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Okay, There's judgment on view there. Verse 19, every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When you come to verse 23, and we looked at this briefly last week, there are those who claim to be followers and even do miracles in Jesus' name. And what are we told, verse 23? I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what you have here is the the strong judgment of God that's on view. Uh, God uh, condemns people, to an eternal separation from himself. Now, that's not popular, but it's real. Right? That That's one sort of judgment. Or it could be the, the sense of judgment that is to discern, um, to have an understanding. You know, the, the uh, person who judges the best sheep at the royal show, you know, or the umpire who works out if it really is a push in the back or not. You know, there's, there's a an exercise of judgment around that, you know, the lecturer at uni who decides whether you pass or fail your assignment, right, there's a discernment assessment sort of process that's going on. And what we're being told here in Matthew chapter 7 is we don't stand in the place of God, that is, he exercises that eternal judgment about the future, but it does seem like we're being told that we're to exercise a godly discernment. Let's confirm, for example, when you get to verse 15. Talking to disciples, he says, watch out for the false prophets. Okay? By their fruit, you'll know them. So we have this, this strange combination of things, right? We're being told, don't judge, but do judge, okay? <laughs> don't judge, but do judge. Exercise godly judgments, but as you do it, be careful not to be judgmental. All, right? All clear? Go and do likewise. Right? Uh, you know, like it's, it's actually trying to get your head around this is not straightforward. But fortunately, Jesus gives us an illustration so we can understand it. And you pick that up in verses 3 to 5. And it's, it's meant to be a humorous sort of illustration. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Everyone's had that experience. You just get a small speck of dirt in your eye and it's as frustrating as anything. Or, you know, an eyelash gets stuck in your eye. And... It is so hard to get rid of. And if someone tries to help you out, it's so hard for them to even see where it is. But it dominates your... You can't do anything while you've got that sort of thing happening with your eye. So you've got this funny situation. We've been told to imagine that you are struggling with this little microscopic dot of dirt in your eye, and I come along to try and help you, Right? but I have a gum tree growing out of my right eye, eye socket, okay, at here like this, you know. I so, say, don't worry, I'll help, you know, and I come staggering in and smash my gum tree on the door frame as I come in and, you know, and I'm coming up to Mark. and like, yeah, Mark, let me help you, you know. And it's, that's, that's the sort of comical picture that's trying to be painted by Jesus at the point. You say, this is so stupid. And what Jesus at this point is doing is identifying the sort of judgment that he's concerned about. It's the hypocritical judgmentalism of the Pharisees that he's got on view and he's been attacking already. The issue he's worried about is looking down on people with critical spirits, moral superiority, and a harsh attitude. The self-righteousness that identifies the sin of others and yet somehow seems oblivious to my own faults and my own sin, that is the concern that Jesus is raising at this point. When I was at Bible College, similar stage to what Mark is right now, I remember I was a student minister at a church and I, I think I'm going to preach one of my first sermons and there were a couple called Duncan and Elsie who came to see me after the sermon now, they were in their, their 70s, late 70s at this point. They'd been in this church for 40 or 50 years. You don't have to leave, Mark. Come back. <laughs> uh, so this couple had been in this church for this period of time. And they came up to me and said to me, Paul, Duncan and Elsie, just so we'd introduce ourselves to you. And we want to let you know that we have the gift of rebuking. Huh? That's exactly what they said. That was their introductory line. And two thoughts occurred to me at this point. I thought... Can this possibly be a gift? You know, the gift of rebuking. And then the second thought I had was, why are you telling me? You know, <laughs> as if I I wanted to know this. But even as I say that, uh, can you hear the way in which uh, I'm looking down on them? Do you know, even for that. You know that that my sense of stepping up and being superior over them as I identify their fault. Do you know what that's like? You know, I think everyone does. That experience of slipping into being slightly superior and thinking that we're better than others. That's the sort of concern that Jesus is raising at this point. Now, he's not saying abandon your discernment, and your ability to test what is godly and what what isn't godly. But he is asking us to think deeply about our relationship with God and how it affects my attitude towards others. And here's the thing. Every single one of us will face up before the living God at the end of the, the age. We will stand before his throne of judgment. So here's the question. How do you you want God to exercise his judgment on you at that stage? Would you like him to assess it based on your performance? That would be disastrous. We would be judged and excluded from the presence of God. I want him to exercise mercy and grace to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want to happen. But if that's what I want to happen to me, Jesus is saying, make sure you operate that way in relation to others. Make sure you understand the grace. Back at the beginning of the the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has already said to his disciples, back in chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. We're to realise our spiritual poverty before God. We're to mourn our sin. And we're to know that we only exist in relationship with God by his mercy. And if you understand those things, then you will never have arrogance in your relationship with other people. Because you always function on the basis of what you've received when you didn't deserve it and therefore you'll treat other people exactly the same way. That's what Jesus is encouraging us to do, not be judgmental and look down on others. Now, how are we, um, how are we likely to do that uh, with one another? Because Jesus, I think, is particularly talking at this point, about how brothers and sisters in Christ can look down on one another. How's it likely to work itself out here? Where are the places where we're likely to uh, feel a little bit superior uh, to others on different issues? I think it can be almost most anything, but I reckon the sort of areas that I've seen over the years are, are things like the way we observe other people spending money, or uh, their aspirations or lifestyle questions, the way they live, what they wear, uh, maybe what you drink or what you drive or, you know, those sort of questions, you know, we slip out afterwards and just check out the cars in the park car park to see what everyone's driving, you know, and what they've spent on those cars and, you know, think think through those sort of things or... Whether we are serving as much as other people or praying as much as other people, whether our biblical knowledge is as great as other people's, or it can almost be anything because it is human, sinful human nature to keep measuring ourselves by comparison with other people and trying to elevate our own sense of worth or behavior by attaching it to our performance or our giftedness. And we're not to do that. Now understand Jesus is not saying don't worry about sin. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying do remember you're a recipient of grace. Do reflect on your own sinfulness and the mercy you've received. And do think and act on the basis of of humility and grace because of your standing with God. Jesus says, in the same way judge, that you judge, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you, right? Judgmentalism, which is hypocritical, that's what he's against. Then you get to verse 6 and Jesus says, do judge, okay? Don't judge, do judge. Don't give to dogs what's sacred, don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them underfoot and tear you to pieces. Now, the thing is, um, in our day and age, you can actually call someone a, a dog and do it with affection. You know, you dog. You know, like I, I don't, you, know, you blokes. I don't suggest you do that to your wives or girlfriends. But do you understand what I'm saying? You know, you can, you can sort of use it in that sort of affectionate way. Or if you've been to the show, is um, Uh, a a performance there of these little pigs who run around performing and jumping off things and swimming across and being incredibly cute, you know, like, you know, cute little pigs and uh, friendly little Labrador-type dogs. And, you know, we can use it, but you can't do that in this context, right? First century, uh, the Jews, the the dogs were wild, wolf-like creatures. The pigs were unclean, wild animals. Uh... And in fact, to use those titles was normally in this first century culture a way of looking down racially on those who weren't Jews. Okay, so it was it, today, it would be like, to call someone a dog or a pig in the first century would be like calling some, someone a, a child molester or a prostitute in our age. Right? Incredibly disparaging. Right, that's, that's the sort of context. Don't judge. Uh, but let me say, this does seem just a tad judgmental. Uh, don't give to dogs what's sacred, don't throw your pearls to pigs. But let me say, I think the point is clear. Jesus is saying, when it comes to particularly unbelievers, uh, don't give them what's valuable if they have no appreciation for it, if they have no appreciation for it. I have a... uh, a granddaughter at this point who's about two and a quarter and she comes over to our place pretty often. We do not feed her her mush on bone china or serve her milk in crystal glasses, right? Because she has no appreciation or even the dexterity to handle those sort of things, right? So we, we don't waste our precious, not that we've got too much that's precious, but you know, you know what I mean. We don't waste it on her. It's a waste of time. And it's the same sort of point that Jesus is making at this stage, But as you listen to that, uh, I can't help but think, but isn't the whole point that we're meant to take the gospel to people who don't appreciate it? Isn't it it like, you know, uh, I acted like a pig and a dog for lots of years before someone kept persistently taking the gospel to me and I finally believed. You know, I was really scathing and harsh on Christians up until the point where I got converted. So aren't we meant to, to do that? So where's this going? Two things. With unbelievers, it's never harsh judgmentalism. Do you understand with unbelievers, it's actually possible to think you're superior because of your lifestyle? And just in the same way we can't do that with brothers and sisters in Christ, you can't do that with non-Christians because you only have a relationship with God based on mercy and grace. You can't look down on them for their sin Uh, because they're but for the grace of God, you're in exactly that same sort of situation. But I also think there are times when it is uh, wiser to move on or to hold back from sharing the gospel. When I got converted, I was about 20 years of age, and I had a group of mates that I'd been going to the pub with for about four years at that stage and having, you know, drinking parties where we just got smashed uh, every weekend. And when I became a Christian, I thought this probably wasn't the lifestyle I should continue in, you know. And, but I kept trying to interact with these guys because I was keen to be a Christian in that sort of context. And I would find that uh, as these parties went on into the night, I started to have gospel opportunities you know, so once, once my friends had had 15 beers or so, they were quite receptive to talking about anything, really. <laughs> uh, and I thought these were opportunities initially, but actually it, was just, it really was just a waste of time. Uh, if they could remember the following morning, it wasn't going to do much good. There are times to step back. Or I've had friends over the years, maybe you've got people like this, who they know what I believe, and sometimes they enjoy um, having fun, you know, just sort of having an argument for the sake of the argument to see if they can win some points. And at that point, I, I just think at that point, it's not being helpful to them to entrench their position by letting them have fun with an argument at that stage. Because okay? they're treating something that is precious. And I think they're entrenching themselves into a anti-God sort of position. Sometimes I think it's just just appropriate to go quietly and not to engage at that sort of point. You may stop, you may invest elsewhere, but can I say you never stop praying and caring for, and you never feel superior to anyone who hasn't believed the gospel. Just by definition, if you're a Christian, that's an impossibility. just can't be done. Don't judge. Do judge. And then I think verses 7 to 11, uh, that, that section on prayer that we started with, is all about how to avoid judgmentalism, how to avoid judgmentalism. To exercise uh, godly discernment, and to do that uh, from a foundation of grace and mercy is really hard to do. It's really hard uh, to keep identifying behaviour that's inconsistent with the gospel and not feel superior at the same time. But that combination is difficult, I think, to hold together as a, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think particularly for those who have been Christians for maybe a short time, maybe it can be a long period of time, and you're zealous for the name of God and you can be quick to identify sin when it appears. And at that point, you're only just a glimmer away from looking down on others who aren't living as disciples the way you think they should be and slipping into feeling yourself superior to them in some way, or looking down on them because they're not keen or as serious as you are. You can slam immorality and yet still have a lustful heart. You can find yourself looking down on people who explode with anger, while you yourself just have the capacity to uh, inwardly seethe when you're being treated badly uh, but not express it in any way and think that somehow that's better. You can be dismissive of those who say they're followers of the Lord Jesus but seem to be so caught up in building assets, bank balance or career that that just seems to dominate their lives. And yet at the end of the day you're just jealous because of what they have and what they've achieved. You understand, it's so easy to do that sort of thing. That's why I think this praying that, that's mentioned here in verses 7 and 11, this is where it fits in. On the face of it, it looks like the open end of prayer. Name it, claim it, ask, you get. Right? It looks that way. But I don't think it's saying this. I want to stop for a moment and just think about uh, what's what's going on at this point as Jesus speaks. But before, before I do that, just, just pause and see the way in which it talks about the character of the God we pray to. Look at what it says in verse 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's um, it's a little bit cryptic, so let me let me again talk to you about my granddaughter. I'll try not to do this every time I speak, but um, uh, she is two and a quarter, right? So pretty helpless and hopeless. Uh, can't do much for herself. Innocent, and she trusts me. Okay, so I want you to imagine, because this this illustration here is meant to meant to shock you. Okay, uh, I want you to imagine that I decide to bake. Lily, my granddaughter, a cake, and she loves cake, okay, and, and just because I'm a malicious evil man, I, d- I ground up glass and I put it into the cake mix and then give it to her to eat, All Right? Now, that should just turn your stomach and make you feel horrible. It's a horrible image that anyone would do that. Now, I would never do that, right? <laughs> Like, I love her, and even though I'm evil, I'm never going to do that to her. That's the point that Jesus is making? If you as sinful people don't act in that way, when it comes to prayer, how much more do you think your heavenly Father loves you and wants to look after you? That's that's the way it's going. We're to pray knowing that God is good. So here's the question. Why doesn't God always answer our prayers and we think it would be good and every one of us has experienced that so recently some of you um, know Steph our gospel partner so she's a gospel partner with CMS she's a woman of about uh, 32, 33 years of age, has been working in Central Asia a place where it is dangerous for Christians to work and uh, trying to share the gospel in that context she came back on uh, leave at the end of last year and soon after she got back she was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Initially it was thought that that bowel cancer could be you know, treated pretty well uh, but it's become clear that it's a rampant form of cancer that is just ravaging her body and the doctors at this point are saying uh, they can put her on palliative care but not, not much more. Right? Uh, Steph's deep desires that she could go back to Central Asia but it looks like she'll be dead within a fairly short period of time. Now, uh, I've known Steph since she was a university student. Uh, She's been involved in Trinity City uh, for lots of years before she went out overseas, and I kept connecting with her and spent time with her before she had her most recent big operation in a hospital. I have prayed that God would heal her from this cancer. but it doesn't look like he's going to. Steph's deep desire is to go back to a part of the world that very few Christians can work in to share the gospel. That seems to me, I don't know about you, I think that's a good prayer, (laughs) that she would be healed and able to go back to Central Asia. This woman that I care for, uh, it just seems wrong that she dies in this way. So why hasn't God answered my prayer? We could explore lots of reasons why that may be the case. But let me tell you one thing, it's not. It is not because God is not good. God loves her and he has a deep desire for his name to be glorified and for the gospel to go out. He is a loving, heavenly Father. Come back to these verses. What are we being encouraged to pray for? Right? I'm going to pray that my girlfriend receive a sign so that she will marry me. No! <laughs> That's not what this is all about. The context here is, it is so hard to be discerning about godliness without being hypocritical and judgmental, and looking down on others. That is really hard to do. Godly, but not judgmental. So what should we pray for? Well, you pray for poverty of spirit. You pray that you'll be merciful. You pray that you'll be salt and light. And you pray that God will help us to live righteous lives that continue to reveal to us when we do it with any sense of arrogance or superiority when it comes to others. And can I say, if you pray that prayer, God will answer it. He promises to. That's what the prayer is all about in this context. It concludes by saying, in everything you do, do to others what you'd have them do to you. For this sums up all the law and the prophets makes sense doesn't it that um, as God's people we're a community that's based on on grace and mercy and that's because God has dealt with us that way now, we long for his name to be honored but it does mean that we'll always be gracious and merciful to the sinful but that, I don't mean that there won't be times where we have strong words with each other we're deeply concerned for one another and love each other to speak openly about issues with one another. But we'll always do it with our arms around people. There'll never be any sense of, um, of us being better than other people or superior to other people because we, we know we're not. We know we stand before God purely because of his kindness to us and therefore we always ask God to help us Respond to other people in exactly the same way with grace and mercy you pray for that, yeah, God will answer your prayer so what I pray we'll be people like that let's pray heavenly father we do do ask you help us to be uh, good students of your word that is keen to understand um, the Bible to understand why it's written and how it fits together and father, we pray that you'll you'll help us to Uh, be people who both have a deep concern to live righteous lives, to live in a way that pleases and honour you, and yet at the same time that you keep correcting our motives, uh, the temptation to feel superior over others, to look down on them. Father, please uh, keep attacking us at the level of our heart, shaping our minds, uh, helping us to respond both to one another and to people in our world, as those who who exist only because of your kindness towards us. Father, we pray that, that you and your kindness will keep making us that sort of people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.